Managing stress is one of the hardest parts about being a human. Stress manifests itself in so many negative ways inside of our bodies. Headaches, stomach aches, problems with sleep. It can also come out in interpersonal relationships. Blow-ups, road rage, bad decisions. And stress can well up and ex exacerbate symptoms of illnesses, which I'm sure we're all pretty terrified of right now. It's crucial to cut off stress before it gets that far, either through meditation or working out or reading, but I also like to use CBD oil. Jupiter CBD oil is certified organic. It tastes clean, quickly breaks the stress cycle, and helps chill you out. Whether you want to take it for stress, focus, or just better sleep, Jupiter CBD oil can work for you. And Jupiter's giving my listeners 10% off using code BRITTANY, that's B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, when you go to getjupiter.com. I'll also put the link in the show notes. If you feel the stress starting to well up, give Jupiter a shot. This episode is also sponsored by Podcorn. As the creator of a podcast, it's your responsibility to choose products or services that are in line with your show's values, which is why I'm so happy to have my show on Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to sponsorship opportunities. On Podcorn's dashboard, I can browse and choose opportunities that fit the show, set my own rates, and talk to brands directly. Podcorn's mission to podcasters is to provide transparency, creative freedom, and full control on how and when we monetize our creative work, which is exactly what I needed for this show. If you have a podcast and this sounds like something you'd be interested in, click the link in my show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Momstead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month I interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. Happy Halloween. I love this spooky holiday. Of course, now there's so much about Halloween that's commercialized with the giant bags of candy, the 12 feet skeleton at Home Depot and every random storefront turning into a spirit Halloween costume store once a year. But the origins of Halloween dating back to the 15th century are very much rooted in celebrating the death of a loved one and working through your grief. In many cultures, All Hallows Eve was the night of the year when the souls of the dead return home. In Ireland, candles would be lit, offered for the souls of the dead, and then after this, eating, drinking, and games would begin. In France, people set out dishes of milk beside the graves of loved ones. In Spain, special pastries are baked, huesos de santo, known as bones of the holy, and they're put on the graves, a practice that actually continues to this day. And in Italy, souls of dead loved ones return home, and the surviving family members set a place for them at the dinner table. So Halloween's origins are very much set in grieving the death of a loved one. So this month, I interviewed a fellow Halloween lover, Rachel Hayes. Rachel is a toy maker in London who also hosts a His Dark Materials reread podcast called Her Dark Materials. Her love for Halloween is very rooted in her family, including her sister Sarah, who passed eight years ago, suddenly of an undiagnosed heart condition at the age of 23. I grew up in a tiny village, like teeny tiny population of less than a thousand, less than a thousand, like 700 or something. I think we moved there when I was one and my sister will have been three or four. And my parents moved, like they grew up there, moved away and then came back. Yeah, I grew up in this tiny little village, village life, doing the pantomime when the village did like a little pantomime and like amateur dramatics and kind of being involved in all the like little village community stuff, which was lovely when we were tiny and really, really claustrophobic when we became teenagers. <laughs> I think Sarah always led the way in a lot of ways. Um, there was a period of time when Sarah was very, very small that my mom was primarily looking after her because my dad was in the Navy and he would go away for really long tours. After I was born, he stopped being in the Navy and we moved back to the countryside. So mum and Sarah had this really strong bond, I think, from those first four years, I guess, before I was around. But we always had this dynamic of Sarah always felt that she had to wait. My mum would be like, you have to wait until you're 10 and then you can get your ears pierced. And you have to wait until you're 12, and then you can get a phone. And I would be 
constantly trying to like push that barrier of like, oh, but can I just get my ears pierced when I'm nine? Please, please. Or like going and getting little magnetic earrings that you put on or the clip on ones and pretending that I'd done it to try and like make her jealous and make her mad. She was so annoyed because I think she was 14 by the time she got a phone and I was like 12. I just started secondary school and she was so mad about it. She did all the legwork for me to have the freedom, I think. <laughs> um, she did a lot of the rebellious stuff first and mum would realise that it was okay and then I'd get to do, <laughs> I'd get to do more things. I definitely grew up being the very annoying little sister. Everything that Sarah did was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I pestered her constantly. I think for a certain time, my mom claims that she really loved it when she was the big sister and um, really enjoyed having a baby to look after. But obviously she grew out of that. And then I was the very annoying kid sister and felt a lot of the... Um, felt a lot of kinship with Dawn in Buffy the Vampire Slayer because I felt like that annoying kid sister all the time because she was very much cooler than me. Uh, when we started secondary school, she was in the top year. She was in year 11 and I was went into year seven, which is, I don't know how that works in American high school structures, but it meant that anyone that ever bothered me when I was like a little tiny first year at school, she would... Um, sort them out and she was a cool kid that would like smoke behind the back of the bike shed and I was never ever ever that kid so I definitely always idolized her and then also we'd have massive arguments because I'd steal all of her clothes and cds it was very much that kind of relationship where she as, as teenagers she'd just have to come and raid my wardrobe to claim back all of the things that were originally hers and I ended up with a very different taste in music and films and things to a lot of my friends because I was so keen to love the things that she loved so she was obsessed with like Rob Zombie horror movies and listened to the distillers and was just like a bit of a badass for like a proper rural British countryside kind of kid and I desperately wanted to be that as well and so I would steal her eyeliner and <laughs> that kind of thing a lot of the things that I love have been shaped by her uh, massively so a lot of the book series is that I read obsessively I do a podcast about his dark material series all of my copies of the book are her copies of the book that I now read like every single year and She's had a massive collection of Terry Pratchett books that I still pick up and read. And I think I pretty much inherited all of my tastes from her. So it's really unusual now bumping into things that I like and being like, this is a new thing that I like that I didn't get from her. Or is thinking that it's something that I would love to share that I can't, which makes it harder. <laughs> and it wasn't until she went to uni we started to have the beginnings of the relationship that I kind of envisage grown-up sisters have, where I would go and visit her and stay with her. We would have more of those like normal conversations that aren't just about who stole whose cardigan from the wardrobe, but about like the TV shows that we loved and the things that we love to do and having more like aware conversations about ourselves and the family as a unit and stuff, which is something that I definitely feel like is I, I only just got the start of that one of the last like proper weekends I spent with her I got dumped out of the blue uh, by a guy I'd been seeing for like a year and it really like threw me and I remember texting Sarah and her being like right well I'm in Edinburgh she was in, in Edinburgh for a year and she was like right that's it book a train come and stay with me I did, I like booked a train ticket. The train was super crowded from Manchester to Edinburgh and I just spent the whole weekend with her and it was the Fringe Festival. And we just had this like amazing sisters weekend where we hung out, ate food, watched comedy, like went to all these live comedy shows together. And in between times, she'd just been introduced to Game of Thrones and I'd never heard of it before. So in between times, we like binged the entire first season of Game of Thrones. So that was another moment when this thing that she'd introduced me to kind of came to a close when that season hit the finale. And I it's I only just finished watching it this year because it took me a little while to get to want to finish it because it was this thing that I'd started with her. Um, but that weekend was like the first 
proper proper taste I got of what our relationship could have grown into or could have and and was like spending that weekend with her running around Edinburgh and just having a really lovely time and I wish I'd done more of it she had just finished university when she died so I'd visited independently like separate from my parents I'd visited her like maybe only four or five times in the entire time that she was at uni because I was so busy dealing with my own teen dramas and being like 16 and 17 when you really just don't have time for anyone else and during that time she went from being like a cool badass punk rock emo like goth girl to a brilliantly nerdy biologist who she went and she did bio uh, biology and biochemistry and all sorts of this like science stuff that I don't understand but that I really really love and had this whole rich life at university that I really loved seeing parts of because she kind of grew so much more into herself when she went away and like found all these amazing friendships there that I think are some of those friendships that like last forever. She had various different groups of friends growing up who we've all interacted with differently. But I think the ones that, that she met at university are the, the, the nicest people she's been friends with. <laughs> Even when I would go and visit her at uni, I was only just 18 and able to go and like have a drink in a bar with her and her friends. And it was so like exciting. And we, we never really got to like properly share a pint, you know? <laughs> October is like a huge, I guess like a huge month for my family. My mum's birthday is on Halloween. She's a certified witch basically <laughs> at this point. But that also meant that my poor mum had to kind of sacrifice her birthday to me and my sister going trick-or-treating around the village. And so we grew up with me being desperate to wear the coolest Halloween costume and my sister would always help me get ready and... I think the first time I wore makeup, she painted my face for Halloween and she was putting lipstick on me. And I was like, it feels like you're going really far onto my face. And she was like, I'm not, I'm not. And I kept telling her, it feels like you're going really far off the edge of my face. And so she just did. She drew massive lips on me. <laughs> and she was like, there, see how it feels. And so there's all these little things that happened around Halloween. And my sister's birthday is the 27th of October. So... We just have a lot of celebrations in October. And on on my sister's 18th birthday, it was my mom's 50th birthday a few days after. And so we threw them a massive combined 18th, 50th birthday party that was obviously Halloween fancy dress themed. <laughs> and I remember it being quite dramatic at the time because she, my sister had been in a relationship that she didn't want to be in anymore but he'd been a huge part of planning this party so it wasn't a surprise for my sister because we had to tell her about the party so she didn't break up with him right before we threw a massive <laughs> surprise party that he'd helped to plan but there's pictures of us at that party and she, I think she took that breakup quite rough afterwards but um there's pictures of us at that party where I'm dressed as some kind of weird zombie cheerleader type situation and she is her hair was cropped really short and she dyed it bright red she was always getting in trouble at school for dyeing her hair like ridiculous colors her hair is bright bright red and she's got these huge red devil wings on and just fake blood just all over herself and I can just see this picture of us that was taken and there's my little cousins who weren't spooky at all and one of them's like painted their face white like a ghost and they're just standing there looking really sweet and innocent and me and my sister like huge goth children loving the moment and <laughs> um, like my poor grandma in the background wearing like a pirate hat <laughs> just trying to join in so yeah Halloween's always been really really special and as proper like British countryside goth children with slightly pagan roots for our, our village has got quite a few pagan traditions and stuff that we love to join in on I think as a family we've successfully cultivated quite a witchy vibe <laughs> we grew up doing camping holidays uh at first we would pile everything into the back of the car with like a massive tent and I just have these really strong memories of 
really, really long car journeys from one end of the country to the other with a cool box of sandwiches between us and all of the bedding for all of the camping smushed behind us in the car, handing like a hot flask of coffee forwards to my dad to drink while he's driving. You could take like three toys on holiday with you, otherwise it was too much to pack. And so we'd have our like three toys each in the back of the car and do little dramas between them. So like my Barbie would be kidnapped by the My Little Pony that was evil because one of the crystals from her eyes had dropped out. And my beanie baby bear would save her and my parents would be driven crazy by me and my sister in the back of the car, like enacting these huge dramas of all of these toys. And like, as we got older, my parents were able to afford a caravan. So we did loads of caravanning holidays. And I had to sleep on like a little shelf bed that like folded out that I was, it was about as wide as I was. It was a very thin little bed and my sister got the double bed underneath until she grew too long for the caravan. And then she had to go and sleep out in a tent in the awning of the caravan. And so we had loads of these very uncool, very not, very not goth camping family holidays <laughs> um, where we desperately, we'd like fighting to get into the like tiny little caravan bathroom so we could do our eyeliner and... Um, go, like being dragged out for huge long walks in not appropriate attire and we usually did caravanning and camping holidays and there was like very few holidays where we would go on a plane we would go abroad somewhere and it would be very, like a big event and it would be really exciting yeah so I was 19 I just finished my art foundation which is like a weird little year between finishing sixth form and going to university and some people take a gap year but I did an art foundation that was like a, an extra year of school just for arts and I just finished all my university applications and my sister had just finished her final year of her like four-year degree course she'd finished that final year she'd taken a year off to work and she'd been like working in one of the local schools and she'd just applied and been accepted to her combined masters and phd in biochemistry at like king's college in london and it was it was it's just this huge thing um and i'd just been accepted to go to art school in london so we were due to move to london together and my parents were just really keen to do like my mom mentioned at the airport i think uh, this is like our last big family holiday because in future you're going to want to do more independent holidays. You're going to, you might have partners, you might have boyfriends, you might want to go off and do other holidays and not want to be stuck with those old fogies. Like this is our proper like family unit, last big family holiday. I think that still kind of kills her a little bit today that that's the way that she phrased it. Um, but I have a really dark sense of humor now. Um, it is it's quite ironic. Um, and she, yes, yeah, we went to mum booked this holiday to Madeira because I think it's always just been someone that's been on my parents bucket list we've never been a particularly beach holiday family but we wanted to go somewhere warm and Madeira has these like beautiful mountains and like this rocky coastline and we love a coastal walk and it was exciting because we were going on a plane and we were staying in a hotel it wasn't a caravan holiday it was like a grown-up holiday <laughs> and we did loads of long drives up massive mountains with these really scary like hairpin bends in the car where we were convinced that my dad could not get this rental car up this hill in one piece <laughs> and we would be like yelling from the back seat because he was definitely going to go over a barrier at some <laughs> point um and yeah hiking up these huge hills where there would be like altitude warnings at the top but you'd be so high and there's just like a layer of clouds beneath you and it was just really beautiful and one of the like one of my happiest memories I think is being on top of one of these mountains and spotting lizards little tiny lizards just like we live in the UK we don't get proper lizards like we maybe get like a slow worm here and there lizards are very <laughs> exciting I'm sure it's not if you're from like California but <laughs> these tiny little lizards like skittering around on the rocks and I had this pale blue scarf with white spots that I was using to cover my shoulders because we're a very pale family and we burn very <laughs> easily um, and we were laying this scarf out on the rocks 
and he's little trying to get the lizards to like run onto it so he could try and catch one and it didn't work <laughs> obviously the lizards definitely know better um but I just remember being there for ages and my I think my parents wanted to go back and me and my sister were like on this on this mountain in the clouds trying to catch lizards mm. um I think that's one of like yeah and now I have a massive tattoo of a lizard on my leg because of it oh I love that we were in like the second half of the holiday. I think we had like two days left of holiday maybe. Uh, the night before we were walking through the town and my sister just kind of stops and looks and is like, cat? And we, you know how when you're like on the other side of the world and you bump into somebody that you didn't know would be there but that you lives like three doors down from you or something? And so it was that her friends, Cat and Dave, who had gotten married like earlier that year, were just also in Madeira. And we just bumped into them walking down the road. And it was just one of those really weird things and ended up like stopping and chatting with them for a bit. And she'd arranged to go and meet them the following night for a drink. The next evening, we were kind of sat playing cards in the hotel room and Sarah was getting ready to head out. I think we ended up having an argument about whether or not I was going with her and I was like of course I'm not going with her like they're her friends they're not my friends like I don't really know them why would why would I go it'll be fine and she borrowed my phone because for some reason she didn't pay the contract thing that meant that she could actually do phone calls abroad um so she borrowed my phone just in case of emergencies and we couldn't find the room key and we had like an argument about where the room key was and did she need one and decided we'd be home and she went out and the next thing we knew we were getting a phone call from the front desk at reception to tell us that we needed to go to the hospital what had happened was that on the way to meet Kat and Dave she'd collapsed in the street we found out much later that it was arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy which is just a weird little unusual heart blip that kind of anyone can have and it doesn't necessarily show up on scans but most people don't get their heart scanned before the age of 24 um and so she'd felt a bit funny and collapsed on the street fortunately Kat and Dave walking to meet her had like spotted a crowd of people and been like what's going on and then having not spotted her like in the meeting place went to see what happened and realized it was her and then they couldn't get my phone to work they couldn't get my phone to work to ring my parents but they remembered the name of the hotel that we were in so they were able to ring the hotel and they knew my parents names and they were able to kind of get in contact with us we just ran to get a taxi and spent I don't know how long in the waiting room of this hospital in Madeira, not really knowing what was happening. Um, all we'd known is that she'd collapsed. Um, I can't remember how long we were there for. The staff were trying to offer us a separate room to go and wait in because we were in the like A&E waiting room. There were people there with like broken arms waiting to be seen and, you know, with all of their normal A&E problems. And we were just this kind of weird huddle of English people in the corner being very stressed out and not knowing what was going on. But it was obviously serious enough that we weren't immediately taken in to see her. I don't know how long it was after, but somebody came out to tell us that they had not been able to revive her. I think technically they probably listed her as dead on arrival because it was such a sudden thing. Um we still refused to be taken into a separate room because we didn't want to be a bother so yeah we got told that she was dead and we every, everybody kind of broke a bit um and they asked if we wanted to see her and we went in and I remember my mum holding her and breaking and I couldn't look I just kind of stood in a corner and I still kind of regret that to this day and um, I couldn't really look and then we had to kind of exist for a few days, just on holiday. It was really weird because 
we were on holiday and we had to go back to this hotel room without her and we had to like go out to restaurants to eat because obviously we're on holiday like we don't have a kitchen we're in a hotel room um for some reason we had it in our heads that we had to still do a couple of holiday things just before we left so like I have a t-shirt with a lizard on it that says Madeira on it because I think we were like we I don't know if we'll ever come back to Madeira so we felt like we had to have something and I just remember really struggling to like it just being really surreal being surrounded by other British people on holiday in restaurants and us just needing to get food so we could go back to the hotel and keep doing things because there was all this admin that needed doing as well I remember sitting in the hotel room I've no idea what I was doing but I remember my dad having to ring home and it being it must be really surreal to be on the other end of that call getting a phone call from your brother who's on holiday and finding out that your niece is dead must be horrendous and I don't know how we did it I think there was just this attitude of well it needs to be done so he sat there for an hour maybe an hour and a half ringing everyone that needed to be told like ringing my auntie and asking her to go and talk to my grandma ringing my uncle and making sure that he was able to tell my cousins one of the hardest people to tell after Sarah died was her boyfriend who she had been dating for a few months and who she'd been Skyping home to every day while we'd been on holiday. And I think that was just one of the really, really hard phone calls was to tell him, partly because we'd never met him before. She'd been dating him a few months and she'd been really excited to introduce us to him and she'd been really excited to go to a wedding with him that was coming up. I think it was going to be a couple of weeks after we got back from our holiday and she'd been wearing in a pair of shoes that she wanted to wear and she'd like bought the dress and I think she was just really generally excited because it was this new relationship and we ended up burying her in the outfit that she wanted to wear to that wedding in those shoes because she'd been so excited to wear them in and they were fancy shoes it was like a, a big purchase for her and we still keep in contact with him now and I think it's really nice and really important and I think it's a real source of comfort for my parents that like knowing that he's kind of still living his life and whilst it must be really really hard I think he's doing really well and I really like the fact that we've formed this relationship with him and I hope that she'd be happy about that too. The, the hotel gave us a fruit basket. I don't think they knew what to do with themselves and I think they were so I think they were so scared or so worried, or so, like, unsure of what to do. And they just gave us this huge fruit basket. And we knew that when we were flying home, we were flying home, like, in the evening. But we had to check out of the hotel in the morning, and we didn't know what to do. And we ended up asking if we could stay. And, like, we were like, we'll pay for the extra night. We don't care. We just don't want to have to leave the, like, leave the room. Um, and they ended up moving us to a different room because ours was booked. But we just had this weird day of waiting to fly home in this, like, not our hotel room, hotel room with this massive basket of fruit that we didn't know what to do because nobody felt like eating. But there's all of this fruit. <laughs> and I think we ended up leaving a note on it being like, to the cleaning lady please take this please give it to your friends we don't know what to do with it thank you for the sentiment and getting the plane home was like a whole other admin thing where my mom had to explain to the lady on the flight desk that we had separate seats we were sat in like four different locations throughout the plane because it was a fully booked plane and we couldn't sit together but obviously on the way back we, we didn't want to sit separately because three of us were flying home when four of us flew out and it was really really hard um and so they moved us to be together which was really good but we were all on the front row of seats that are like right at the front of the plane and 
there's where the flight attendant stands to deliver their speech about safety. And it felt really weird to be like right at the front, kind of going through this thing. Like we were kind of on the stage at the front of the plane because then taking off was people on the plane probably thought that there was some kind of like safety situation occurring on the plane because there was these three strange British people just crying at the front of the plane as we were taking off. Um, It must have just been a very surreal flight for everybody else involved because it definitely was for us. And then there was all all this admin and paperwork that my parents must have had to deal with to get her home afterwards. And I remember picking up a phone call that was from the coroner who had to do the inquest because when a British person dies overseas, there just always is an inquest. I'm not entirely sure why, but there just is. And so I remember like getting those phone calls and receiving those that paperwork and having to deal with all the like frustrating bureaucracy that kind of surrounds that kind of thing that felt like this really it was kind of perfect in a lot of ways because we all needed to be angry at something or someone and then there was all this bureaucracy to be angry at and it was perfect because people are awful (laughs) at (laughs) dealing with grieving people especially people that work in like really bureaucratic roles sometimes so like my mum speaking to I think she had to speak to somebody about getting my sister's medical records because actually getting her home was too expensive it was like all of these costs that you don't expect and so we had to claim on her insurance on like the holiday insurance because we don't like most the average 24 year old student doesn't really have a life insurance policy (laughs) So we had to do it all on the holiday insurance and the holiday insurance was like, you have to have all of her medical records so that you can show that she wasn't ill first. And in order to do that, we need her birth certificate and her medical records. And then my mom's talking to the doctor, like, I need all of this. And they're like, oh, you can't have it. She has to release it to you. And I was like, she can't. The point is that she's, she's dead. She can't tell you that I'm allowed her medical records. Like, I need them so that we can get her home and they'll be sending a lot of the certification with her and loads of weird little loopholes and things that were like the weirdest bureaucracy in the world um to try and get around that were perfect things for us all to get really angry at because we definitely needed it in that moment everyone knew my dad in the village because he's like the local computer fixing man and he goes like house to house so Everybody kind of knew my family a bit, so everybody knew who she was and word travels fast in really small villages. Right after we got home from holiday and everyone kind of already knew, my dad's like best mates with the postman and he, I don't know if it's legal actually, he had diverted a postcard that my sister had written to my grandma because he knew that it would be really, really hard for her to get this postcard So yeah, the funeral was a really weird situation. Earlier that year, I had already been to a funeral for a young person that had died very suddenly of an unexpected heart condition. And so weirdly, I already had this view in my head of what a young person's funeral looked like. And it was a hell of a lot of people, a hell of a lot of crying. And he was a school friend that had died whilst he was away at uni. And so weirdly a lot of the people around us had already experienced like the loss of a young person and my mum had this very strong image in her head of not wanting the people in my sister's life who's for whom it was their first ever funeral she didn't want them to have to like look at a coffin for an hour while we had like a, a church service and stuff so we had the burial before the like before the service thinking it'll just be close family it'll just be we kind of told everyone about it we were like you don't have to come we know that it's really like it's a really heavy thing like it might be your first time like it's we don't want you to have to witness this thing it's quite traumatic but so many people showed up to the burial which is in the churchyard which is out of the village um because this tiny one in the middle of the village 
filled up in like the 1800s or something. Um, so it's in this like huge field on the outside of the village. And I just remember everybody walking down this country lane that with like potholes in it, in their like funeral gear to like to and from the funeral. And then the service itself, we had a massive vase of flowers and a photo instead of instead of the coffin. And I had a personal vendetta against the vicar. Um, I didn't like him. He did my school friend's funeral and he did a huge long speech with an analogy about a tapestry that didn't make any sense. And so in the run-up to my sister's funeral, we had this conversation with this vicar. I wouldn't have personally chosen him, but he's kind of the only choice because it was a small village. <laughs> and he, this one vicar does all of the like six or seven villages in our area. So it's, if you want to have a funeral in a church and not go all the way into Sheffield, which is our nearest city, and which is the nearest place that will otherwise do a funeral, you have to kind of have this vicar and I think my grandma's liked him but he beforehand was insistent that everybody that was speaking gave him a copy of what they were going to be saying in case they couldn't finish he would take over don't worry he'll take over God. and I said to him, I remember asking him what he was planning on saying and he started talking about a tapestry and I had to interrupt him and be like, I'm really sorry, I've already been to a young person's funeral this year and you've, I've already heard the tapestry thing, please can you not say that? I don't want to hear it again, it wasn't, I don't want to hear it again. Um, and he, I think he was like personally offended by it. Um, <laughs> I've been working years on that tapestry analogy. It didn't make any sense. <laughs> um, and so instead he did an analogy that also didn't make sense. My family does a very good job of channeling grief into rage at small inconsequential bureaucratic figures. Um, this poor vicar has been the subject of a lot of my rage. Um, he did some kind of analogy to do with poem I think about a swallow flying through a barn door I still don't particularly remember the point of it but I do remember that it went on for a very long time and there were plenty of people that wanted to say nice words about my sister that weren't this random vicar I still hate him to this day he performed my cousin's wedding and he also said something at that and I don't like this man um, <laughs> But it was a very, very, it was, he was a very useful figure for me around that day because I was able to get through some of the, my own more like painful things by just focusing my energy on finding him irritating instead. We were really aware that there was going to be a lot of people and it was a small village and there's not a lot of places to have a wake. Um, a lot of people do it in the local pubs. And we've been to a lot of like elderly people's wakes in local pubs. And for some reason, we just didn't want to do that. Uh, so we had it in the local village hall, which is like, it's kind of the venue where everything happens. Like my mum was like a brownie guide leader and they would hold brownie meetings there and they would do the village pantomime there and they would do like, we have this like ancient village ceremony garland ceremony thing with maple dancing and we would do maple dancing rehearsals like every every Sunday there um in the run-up to the garland day and so this it was kind of like the village hall is like the kind of the hub of the village really um and we ended up having the wake there and it was catered by a local pub and there was this great big table of food in the middle of the hall and I didn't realize this at the time because I was busy in this weird bubble of God, everyone's being super aware of your emotions and being very nice to you, but also you're kind of ho one of the family that's hosting the event. So you're on this like hosting mode of trying to make sure everyone's got what they need and are comfortable, but everyone's very aware of you and your needs. I am one of five, five cousins in total 
three of whom are girls. So I was like one of five girls in the family of like all of us with cousins. And this estranged aunt came up to me at the wake. I think she'd had a fair amount to drink and she just went, which one are you then? And I was like, oh, um, I'm, I'm Rachel. I'm the one that didn't just die. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then I think I was whisked away by somebody that was far more socially aware. But that sticks with me as like a horrendously hilarious moment of what a question to ask. I think she might have thought I was one of my cousins and not one of, and obviously not me. But just, yeah, which which one are you then? Oh, well, you've got a choice of two and one of them you're attending the funeral of right now. So um, not that one. But yeah, there's this huge, huge table of food in the middle because everyone you've got to have a buffet awake and nobody had touched it. And I didn't find out until ages after that everyone was waiting for either me, my mum or my dad to eat something. And I think I was just not, I don't know, I wasn't thinking but I went and grabbed a bit of cake and then suddenly everyone was like oh it's okay we can we can touch the buffet now one of the families had a piece of cake and I think someone came up to me and was just like well done that was very that was very well done like smooth move because <laughs> like it was a way of saying everybody eat without saying everybody eat but mm-hmm. I didn't know I'd done it I just like grabbed a profiterole because I needed one <laughs> you're the hero just, yeah in that weird little moment <laughs> The Haunting of Hill House is the first season in a horror drama anthology series. It's loosely based on the 1959 novel by Shirley Jackson. The story alternates between two timelines, one summer in 1992, and then in the present, when we follow five adult siblings, the Cranes, whose childhood experiences at the Hill House, including the death of their mother, continue to haunt them. The story starts in 1992 when Hugh and Olivia Crane, along with their five kids, move into the Hill House for the summer. What was just meant to be an interim stay winds up forcing them to stay much longer, thanks Black Mold, and they start to feel the wrath of the paranormal spirits that inhabited the house before them. Nell, the youngest daughter, is haunted by the bent neck lady. Theo, the middle daughter, realizes that she has empathic powers through her hands, but the mother Olivia, played by the absolutely stunning Carla Cugino, is the most affected by the house's influence. She becomes highly irritable. She even sees ghosts who try to convince her that killing her family is the only way to protect them from suffering. This inevitably ends in her death and her family's fleeing from the house without her. Now in the present, the fractured family still struggles to work through the tragedy of losing their mom and what some of them believe was a suicide. The family is forced to confront their mother's death when Nell goes back to Hill House and meets her own death, similar to her mother's. Mom? It's okay, honey. Mommy. I mean, I am an absolute scaredy cat. So for me, it was kind of a case of enduring the jump scares and enduring the scary things to kind of like be able to engage with and watch this family drama. The way the whole family interacted with each other in the moments as adults really resonated with me. There's one episode that is... Nell's funeral and it's like a whole episode in one shot that's amazing and something about the like little pockets of conversations that happen throughout the day and nobody's really quite directly talking about how they're actually feeling resonates so hard as somebody that also regularly struggles to talk about their feelings um and the way that that family dynamic all fits together and the way that the different members of the family are all dealing with with their grief because not only did they lose their mom when they were little but then suddenly they've had their sister taken away from them 
the way that the show is structured with so many time hops, mm-hmm. the grief becomes this kind of great big like lattice work that like runs throughout the whole thing. So it becomes really hard to differentiate for me between the loss of the mother and the loss of the sister just because I guess in the show Nell's loss is so fresh. So a lot of the stuff that happens for them around the events surrounding Nell's death are, they resonate with me in terms of that really recent freshness of it. But the way that a lot of the family is dealing with their mom, which is so much removed by time, also resonates with me as as I've also been removed by time from my own loss. How grief can like affect that family dynamic as well and how they've all kind of grown apart and grown together in different ways and the different pockets of that family, how they function together is something that I think is really powerful. Every TV critic on the planet pointed out that the five siblings all represented the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief that I'm sure a lot of us are torn on because the idea that grief is linear is obviously false. And in this family, the stages correspond with the siblings' ages. So Stephen, the eldest, is now a horror author who minds his family's trauma as well as the trauma of others, but he doesn't believe anything he writes. He is also totally in denial with how paranormal activity has haunted his own bloodline. So does anyone else have another question not related to Hill House? I have a question. No, I I didn't know you... I'm so glad you're here. Why do you keep lying to these people? (laughs) What? I'm saying, why did you charge these people $30 a head to sit here and listen to you talk about things that you don't believe? Nellie, we can talk about this after the reading. No. Now you stand there and you talk about ghosts and spirits. And you sell tickets for the privilege and yet you don't believe in any of it. No. And you tell me I'm crazy and that mom was crazy and Luke's crazy and we're all just nuts. And then you tell our stories. My stories. The same stories that you told me were just dreams. Or delusions. We can talk about this later. And you're supposed to be my big brother. Shirley, the next oldest, is a mortician and is constantly surrounded by death. But she experiences everything with anger, including her own infidelity. Theo is my emotionally unavailable queer middle child, and she's a child psychologist who loves drinking and sex. I'm drinking every time I feel like punching something. No surprise which sibling is my favorite. But Theo is bargaining by cutting herself off from feeling and rationalizing that. Luke is the older twin. He battles a drug addiction and experiences depression more than any of his other siblings. And he's closest to Nell. Nell, though in life she battles sleep paralysis demons, seeing the bent neck lady, which we later learn is herself, uh, a foreshadowing of her own death, showing that she's been haunted by herself her whole life. She eventually represents acceptance and allows her siblings to feel it too when they go back to the house to save Luke. Nell's story resonates really hard with me just because I see her so fragile and so perfectly like constantly on the edge of being about to wail that I see that kind of grief in her that it makes me want to like grab her and wrap her up and I kind of that's a feeling I that I really like really resonates really hard with me when anyone is talking about grief or when anyone is talking about um a loved one that they've lost because I kind of understand that frequency that she's kind of vibrating at constantly throughout and I equally understand so many of the other siblings attitudes towards things and Elizabeth Risa who's Shirley who's the mortician her whole like very practical we can fix it attitude and like I can fix it I can make it right um if I do it correctly and I know the tools I've there was a problem I struggled with it I learned the tools and now I'm going to attack like and now I'm going to attack it and now I'm going to make it perfect is something that really resonates with me personally is like if there is a way to fix something I will try to fix it yeah it's like a Um, way to take back control of, of something definitely yeah 
at the end, that last episode, um, where they all get to speak to Nell one final time, it kind of kills me. There's a line, there's a quote that kind of hit me and it's like, it's, it's the kind of thing I probably would have written or read out at my sister's funeral, talking about how she's not gone, she's scattered into so many pieces, sprinkled on their life like snow. I learned a secret. There's no without. I am not gone. I'm scattered into so many pieces, sprinkled on your life like new snow. There's so much I want to say to you all. I'm so sorry our last words were in anger. They weren't our last. Sorry. I'm sorry that I didn't answer the phone. So many times. I'm sorry if I didn't listen and I'm sorry. Wouldn't have changed anything. I need you to know that. Forgiveness is warm. Like a tear on a cheek. Think of that and of me when you stand in the rain. I loved you completely. And you loved me the same. That's all. The rest is confetti. <sighs> I think that whole idea that they all get to have that one last conversation with her and say just that one thing that they've been meaning to. One of them's like, oh, if I'd have just picked up the phone. And she's like, it wouldn't have made a difference. And you picked up the phone so many other times. And I definitely have that. I have, if I'd have just decided to go with you for a drink with your friends, like there would have been someone with her. And that's like a huge thing. But that's something you you can't do anything about. But knowing and seeing the characters being given that forgiveness is is really cathartic, I think because you can't change the past. It isn't a logical thing to think, but it's something everybody does think. Are you coming? So. It's all you. Oh, gee, thanks. Dad, Theo's taking the green room. I want the green room. <laughs> I'm on my way. I'll show you. Are you sure? You guys go on without me. How could we? Um, I have a friend who I went over to his house like days after I got back because I just needed to get out of my house. And um, I was chatting to his mom, who used to be my science teacher, who's an absolute babe. And she was like, oh, bless him. He didn't know how to talk to you. He came up to me and he said, how do I talk to Rachel? I don't know what to say. And she told him, well, she's still Rachel. She's just really sad right now. Do something nice. And we ended up watching like a stand-up comedian that does these horrendous like one-liners. He's called Tim Vine and all he does is one-liners. Like that's his whole thing. I think the stand-up show is called like Punslinger or something. I just have this memory of sitting there with Josh kind of in the knowledge that he felt horrendously awkward to be next to me and watching this comedian do these horrendous jokes and like laughing and then also kind of crying at the same time because any emotion that's strong enough when you're in that space will probably make you do a cry and another friend that I think she was trying to help um they were like let's hike up a hill let's hike up Mamtor which is this like uh it is a mountain in the Peak District it's like next to my village I grew up in a very beautiful place um, and she was like, let's go up Mamtor. It's a windy day. You can scream off the top of a mountain and it will make you feel loads better. And I was like, yes, that sounds amazing. Exactly what I want to do right now is scream off the top of a mountain. And I do highly recommend it. <laughs> but on the way back down, we had to walk through this field with cows in it. I've grown up in the countryside my whole life. I know that if you're walking through a field with cows in it, it's fine. You just walk close to the wall and you go for it and don't walk towards the cows don't make eye contact with them they're bloody massive they're quite scary and this one cow kind of took issue with us and 
was about to go for us. And I just screamed in this cow's face. <laughs> and it just, it, it ran away. It just looked really shocked and kind of turned around and was like, fine, and walked off. And we just kind of like walked out of this field a little bit in shock because we'd almost been trampled by a cow. And my friend turned to me and was just like, kind of laughing and crying and terrified all at the same time. It's just like, I don't know what I'd have done if I'd have had to go home and tell your mum that I'd just got you killed by a cow <laughs> when I took you up a hill to scream about your dead sister. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that would have been really awkward, wouldn't it? <laughs> Aside from the cow trampling, um, have adopted the thing of if somebody's going through something shit, I'll be like, do you want to climb a massive hill and scream into yeah. the wind? I promise it helps. <laughs> Because it did. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a great offer because you end up having to have proper conversations on the way up the hill. You can have a big old scream at the top and people might think you're crazy, but it's fine. Yeah. I have only recently started going to therapy and counselling and I genuinely wish that I'd have thought about doing it sooner. But also now is probably the best time in part because I'm an awkward human and the pandemic means that I can do therapy via Zoom and that's great. Um, but I think the little moments that we do take as a family and that I do take to kind of be aware of myself and be aware of her or do something that celebrates that celebrates her is the happy, sad stuff definitely helps me get through the sad, sad stuff. I do tend to, if I get sad about a normal life thing, my grief will tend to like piggyback onto it and like pop in through the back and be like, did you forget about me? <laughs> and I have to be quite aware of that. <laughs> and that's definitely something I've learned through therapy is um, about, yeah, grief's sneaky way of piggybacking yeah. onto normal life stuff. Be like, wait a minute, are we sad? <laughs> Can I join? <laughs> did you remember that time you were really sad? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think that having been to so many funerals and then so many funerals of young young people um before yeah before the age of 21 has it's given me a lot of patience for other people's emotions and space and I think the only thing I would ever be angry at somebody for is judging the way another person chooses to grieve um because it's not a choice it's just how you're coping i've got fr i've got friends that i've known for years who no matter what when i see them we always end up talking about grief and about funerals and about how how shit it was that we went to so many funerals when we were younger so when i interact with someone that's going to their first ever funeral at the age of 30 and it's their nan who was pushing 100 um obviously very empathetic but I'm almost happy for that person I'm not happy for them that they're experiencing grief but I'm so happy that they've not had to do it sooner and that it's not in an unusual order and occasionally I'm a little bit jealous of that person at the same time the friendships that I have with people who've also been through something similar um or like also lost a friend because it's mostly mostly other people I know have lost a friend rather than a sibling it's you just kind of hold hold each other a little bit tighter and you have this thing that you can't necessarily talk that easily to other people about because they don't get it it's not quite the same as like losing your nan it's not quite the same as losing your dog like it's it's so different and yeah it is all the same because for those people that's the biggest thing they've had yet it's just that can get so much bigger and so much different in shape and size that year I think I went through a space of a year where I lost it was it was a really weird order it was like my granddad a school friend my sister a different school friend and then my grandma so I kind of had it topped and tailed by two elderly people and three young people's funerals in the middle and it was just this really surreal 18 month period where I did a lot of funerals and a lot of like intense stuff and I think that was I was like 19 or 20 because I was at uni and I was miles away from home so soon after it was almost like a secret that I had that I'd would be really really hard to talk to people about because 
just you don't just casually drop in that you've done a whole bunch of funerals last year um to like a normal conversation when you're trying to make friends with new people at university so I remember that being something that was really difficult to do if sometimes it felt like coming out to be like oh I've got another funeral to go to mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I definitely had a phase where if I had met somebody new it happened a lot at uni if I've met somebody new and I hadn't yet told them I would have recurring dreams where I would be with this new person or my new group of friends and then suddenly my sister would show up and I'd have to explain to them all why she was here and that she wasn't really here because she was actually dead but I would have to kind of have that conversation in my dream and then that would usually prompt me in life later to like sort that out (laughs) Um, because it was clearly something that was pestering me. In like my first month at uni, I was sat with a bunch of new people. They were all on my course. And one of the girls at the table was telling us about how her boss at work was off work because they'd had a phone call that their kid had died on a skiing holiday. And she was having this conversation and everyone at the table was like, oh my God, on holiday, can you imagine? can you imagine how horrible that would be to have that happen on holiday? And I just sat there and I couldn't, I couldn't bring it up. I couldn't tell them because they were having like a a normal people's conversation about how can you imagine how horrible that would be? And I knew that if I said, if I like put my hand up and said, I can imagine because it kind of happened to me that they all would have been horrified and it would have been a really bad experience for them to have to have that awkwardness occur. So I I just didn't say anything, but I think about it quite often. (laughs) Mm. I had the sibling conversation with somebody at work a long time ago. I I worked in a prop industry and it was really rare that you got to like sit down and like have like a quiet room. And I was sat in this room, we were gluing like paper leaves to something me and this other girl and just having the first time in ages like having just like a chit chat get to know you conversation she was like oh do you have any siblings and I had that moment of like yes but and so I just said yes I said oh yeah a sister she was like oh what does she do I was like oh she studied biology at uni and then I was like oh what about you and she's like oh Um, well, I have a sister, but she died. And I just kind of showered, me too. (laughs) Um, And I just didn't, it was just a moment of like, it was very different. Her experience was very different to mine. But in that moment of being like, she just came out, I can come out. (laughs) Yeah, like it's She just said it, I can say it. Yeah. (laughs) In like other cultures, Halloween and Um, the days of the dead and stuff are a time to like remember your dead and remember your ancestors and stuff I think a lot of people in the UK are like oh Halloween it's so it's such an Americanism like all the trick-or-treating and like jack-o'-lanterns what are you talking about and I'm like no I'm just gonna carve a pumpkin I I love it I love spooky things I don't care if it's an Americanism my sister was the same and October can be really hard but it's also like it quite quite a lot of it's happy sad um I went home a few, like last weekend and I carved a pumpkin to take to my sister's grave because she would have bloody loved it. And I'm going to probably going to carve pumpkins for my house on her birthday because it's just something that's really nice to do and she would have loved it. We threw her a 30th birthday party. I think everybody else in our life thought it was really, really weird. But we booked out the village hall and we borrowed the village cinema society's cinema screen and we invited her friends and our family and people that we thought would not think that we were crazy and we did a screening of the rocky horror picture show and carved pumpkins and ate halloween food and had a 30th birthday party for her because i think she would have enjoyed it it was a really unusual conversation that i had with my mum because we were all, the whole family was aware that her 30th birthday was coming up and we knew we didn't want to not do something. But we were really worried about how weird it would be if we did something. And I think my mum said to me, like, 
so do you think you'll be coming home for the end of October? And I was like, yeah, I think so. I've got a really weird suggestion for you. And she was like, do you want to have a party? And I was like, I really do. I really want to have a party. So we threw a massive party for her for her 30th birthday. And it was really sad, but it was really fun. I definitely remember turning 23 and thinking, this is how old, this is how old she was. And being really, really scared of turning 24 because everything after 24 was untrodden ground. She'd, like, getting my ears pierced and getting a new phone, she'd always been, like, testing the water before I ever had to go anywhere. She was a few steps ahead of me. And um, turning 24 was petrifying because she'd not done it before. I didn't know if it was going to be okay because I didn't have somebody that had already gone and done it. Going to university whilst it was really scary and really big like my sister passed away in August and I moved out of I moved out of home in October but we also didn't know what else to do and she'd done it before and had been fine living away from home so I just did it and then being 24 and being past the point that she was at and then I was out of formal education I was out of university and I was like in the world and it was just a bit scary not knowing what was next because whilst I knew plenty of other people who were older, it hadn't been done in my family yet, um, except for by my parents, which is like a different vibe. I have a friend, but like one of my best friends from uni is the same age or like a few months different age from my sister, but I've never been able to see her as the same age as my sister because being in the same year of uni made us feel like we were the same age and I always visualised my sister as older than that. So even knowing that she hit 30 and was fine, <laughs> um, just every year I get older, it's like a few more years away. And thinking about how young 23 feels now that I'm 27, it's not that far away, but it is. There's a parallel life there where my sister moved to London with me and we found the cool bars in London and we like had this like adult relationship as sisters who met up for dinner and like as two separate grown-up humans and like had this relationship that just never materialized and I feel like yeah there's this this parallel somewhere where that that has happened <laughs> um Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Rachel, you can follow her on Instagram at rachmakes and listen to her podcast, Her Dark Materials. If you want to support the podcast on Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com slash deadmomcast. And I'm Brittany Ashley. You can follow me at Britt27ash, that's B-R-I-T-T-27-A-S-H, on Twitter and Instagram, or go to BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. <laughs>